Good morning, everyone. If you would turn with me in your Bible to 1 John chapter 1. We will read the passage and then we will jump in. First John chapter 1, verse 1, this is that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have touched, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that our joy may be complete or full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning with joy in our heart to be able to study from the Word of God. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this time and help us to uh, accurately uh, understand the Word of God that you've given to us. Give me the words to preach clearly and um, to be a vessel of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of this Word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a boy, my dad uh, would have to uh, confront me and my brother a lot of times because we would fight. My brother's six years older than me, but that didn't keep me from thinking I was his equal. Um, I was convinced until he left for college that we were the same age. I didn't understand why I wasn't leaving for college, too. I was like, I don't understand this. Um... But I used to argue with my brother a lot, and it took a long time for me to uh, really understand how to not be in constant conflict with my brother. My dad would say something to us when we were in conflict, when we were quarreling. He would say, the problem isn't the problem. And that always frustrated me. I never understood what it meant. I I didn't, of course the problem is the problem. What do you mean? I, it is on, I believe. He would say, the problem isn't the problem. And I didn't really understand what he meant by that. And you might say, well, it's pretty obvious. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, you know, wars and, qu- and quarrels and, um, come from our passions and desires, you know. So all you have to do is subdue your passions and desires and you won't war and quarrel. But how do you do that? How do you have... Joyful fellowship. How do you achieve that? Well, I think that you'll see from our study in 1 John chapter 1 how that is achieved. 
If you look with me at the handout, you'll notice that it's a little different from your New King James Version. I wanted to address that. This is my study of 1 John, and I have a few translation that a few things that I've changed in the translation for me, from my understanding of the Greek, to help me understand it. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, which we have touched, which we have heard, all these things are referring to what? What are they referring to? Well, in chapter 2, verse 14, 12 through 14, we'll identify that it's actually a person that it's referring to, not a thing. How do you hear a thing, and how do you touch a message? So some people have argued that it's the word of life. Well, I'll argue that that's a person too. Um, Some people say it's referring to the message. But I really do believe that this is referring to a person. And there's a couple of different ways that you can go about proving that. First, you have to identify what we know about this thing, which was from the beginning. Worse stuff, we know it's from the beginning. Um, you could try and make an argument that it's the beginning of something. Maybe the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. Or the beginning of one thing or another. But there's only really one thing scripturally known as the beginning. There's only one thing. And that's the, in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. And so, that which was from the beginning must be from the beginning of creation. It's also um, interesting to note that this passage very clearly parallels Gospel of John chapter 1, which many people have interpreted as referring to Jesus. The Word, which was with God, and the Word was God. Now, if you've ever heard a uh, pastor preach on the Gospel of John 1, 1, and weren't entirely convinced that the Word was Jesus... You're in good company. I have before heard sermons on that and not entirely understood why it would refer to Jesus. I think this is actually a much clearer passage that the word of life, which is eternal, the eternal word of life, which appeared, which was with the Father, is Jesus Christ. You see that evidenced in verse 3. We know that the word of life is with the Father. That's in verse 2, which was with the Father. And we see in verse 3 that the people who he's writing to don't have, or they are possibly going to have fellowship with us, I'm going to argue as the apostles, and with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So that Jesus Christ, his Son, has fellowship with the Father. That's the first clue. The second clue, and I think more um, convincing, is this word appeared. It doesn't happen very often. And in 1 John, it only happens in this passage, in verse 2, and also in chapter 3, verses 2 through 6. So if you'll turn with me there, briefly, um, I think that it will begin to make more sense. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. 
for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins break the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And it continues on. Uh, And it's a wonderful passage to study. But I want to focus on the fact that he will appear when Christ appears. That's future tense. And in verse 5, he appeared. There's the future appearing of Jesus Christ. And then there's the past appearing of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the only thing in the Gospel of John that appears. Now, if you'll go back to chapter 1. Thinking about this passage again with Jesus Christ as the the one who appears, um, it begins to make a little bit more sense. Why is John so ambiguous? Why doesn't he just go out and say, Jesus was from the beginning. Jesus, who we heard, who we've seen with our eyes, we've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Why is he ambiguous? I think personally, my... I believe that he's ambiguous because he wants you to think. He wants you to think, what, what was it that appeared? What, what, what is it that we can testify so profoundly about because we were there? And why is, he, why is he choosing to use so many different ways to testify this? The hearing, the seeing, the touching, and involving all the sentences. The only one he doesn't use is smell. Right? And, and who's we? How do we know we? Well, if you believe as I do that the Apostle, John the Apostle, is the author of this book, then we, and the description of what they witnessed, Jesus Christ, I believe indicates the Apostles, the twelve disciples. He was one of the twelve, very frequently, that group, a member of that group would say, we is referring to that group. What he's doing is he's building the authority for what he's about to say. Why is he doing that? Well, if you read on in First John, you're going to realize that this church, like a lot of other churches, are facing false teachers, antichrist. People who are trying to sway the body of Christ from the truth, from the, the word, from the message which was originally preached. And so he's saying, we, the apostles, saw Christ. We touched him. He was real. And we're proclaiming this concerning the word of life. He says, we proclaim to you, in verse 3, what we have seen and heard, so that. You can see I have in the box there, we proclaim to you why. It's John's purpose for the book. You're going to see that in verse 3 and 4. is the entire purpose for this book. You want to know why he wrote it? This is why. We proclaim to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We, make, we write this to make our joy complete. Interestingly enough, he has joy. But it's not complete. And that will become relevant in a minute. And you see at the bottom of that page, who's the audience? Although there is no direct reference to the audience in this book, through context we can ascertain that it is a large group of believers of various ages and levels of maturity. Some speculate that it is addressed to the seven churches from Revelation 1 verse 4. This would place them geographically in modern day Turkey. 
Now, that's an assumption. I don't know who the direct audience is, but we do know that they're believers. Now, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. Listen up. This is the message. This is the most important part. Don't miss this. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Okay. Do we know what light is? No, we don't know what light is yet. Do we know what darkness is? No, we don't know what darkness is. We can guess, but let's not do that. Let's see if maybe the context of this passage brings it out a little bit. We only know so far that God is light and there's no darkness in him at all and they're opposites. Light and darkness. Don't have fellowship with one another. Verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship or if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I have verse 6, 8, and 10 connected by a black line. And uh, I hopefully will make it clearer to you why I've done that. I believe verse 6 indicates a lot about what the darkness is, and verse 7 will indicate what the light is. And then verses 8 and 10 further clarify what the darkness is, and verse 9 further clarifies what the light is. So if we claim we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So walking in darkness is not having fellowship with God. And not having fellowship with one another. Not having fellowship with believers. And that is his goal for this book. That they have fellowship with one another and with Jesus Christ and the Father. Right? That's his whole goal. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son purifies us from all sin. First thing I want you to notice is that sinning does not break... It, it does not mean that you are an unbeliever. We cannot claim to not have sin. We have sin. We are sinners. We sin as believers. It is inescapable. We are sinners. If you claim that you have not sinned, you are self-deceived. In verse 8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar because God claims that we're sinful. And yet in verse, in verse 6, it seems that sin... It certainly separates us from God, right? So how do, how do we have fellowship with a God of light when we walk in darkness? How do we walk in the light as he is in the light? It doesn't seem to say, but it does. Verse 9 explains, because it's a parallel passage, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You can see the idea of purifying. And you notice that we're the ones doing the action in verse 6, 8, and 10. We're the ones claiming. But if we walk in the light, or if we confess, then 
Christ begins a work. Christ begins to do the action. And he reunites us in fellowship with one another. His blood purifies us from all sin. And he is faithful to forgive us from our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this is contingent on confession. If we confess our sins, he will act. If we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sins. Now many people, historically, at least in my experience, have used this verse as a salvific verse. You know, like, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confess your sins and be saved. And although I think that is a wonderful thing to do, and I want to discourage people from being saved, I will argue that this is speaking specifically to believers. Why do I think he's talking to believers? Well, for one, 1 John 2, 12 through 14 clearly indicates that his audience is a believing audience. Let me briefly read that to you. Verse 12, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, dear children, because you know the father. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. See the repetitiveness? I am writing to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. How have they overcome the evil one? They're believers. His aim is to separate people from God. Furthermore, if you go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 4, It says he writes these things to make their joy complete. Why would he be joyful if his audience is unbelieving? Why wouldn't his joy be complete if his audience who is believing is not in fellowship with God? That's why. So how does this... um, how does this apply to us? Um, who needs joyful fellowship? Well, I believe the first thing uh, to think through as a church that's seeking revitalization is that if you have joyful fellowship with one another and with God, then that is the most important thing and the first thing. And I... I i got to say, I've seen joyful fellowship here. But I don't see everything. And I know that with me personally, I have to, I have to, I have to struggle with in my life on a regular basis just by having joyful fellowship with my wife on a regular basis. Our marriage isn't perfect. I sin. So does Brenna. And so on a regular basis, I believe as the divinely appointed leader of my home and the mandate from Ephesians 5.25 says that I am the steward, I'm stewarded with the responsibility to fight for the joyful fellowship in my home. You have to fight for it. And this is true for all men here. All fathers. You have to fight for joyful fellowship. And um, true for every believer as well concerning the church. 
But how do you fight for joyful fellowship? Do you do it with a warhammer and a machine gun? No. You do it on your knees. And although I strongly advocate going to your knees to pray, I'm not talking about going on your knees before God. I'm talking about going on your knees before someone whom you've offended. It is profoundly difficult to be proud while you're on your knees, in my opinion. And although that step isn't necessary, I would encourage you to take it if you feel that that is how you will accomplish God's mandate. And, um, you know, if you think in your heart and in your mind, you think, yeah, dad, or yeah, ma, yeah, brother, yeah, sister, yeah, son, yeah, daughter, yeah, wife, yeah, husband, yeah, Gabriel, why don't you heed your own words, get on your knees, confess. Then I contend with you that this is not the spirit-filled, battling heart that is saying this. This isn't someone who's seeking joyful fellowship. In fact, as long as you walk in darkness, you will, have, you will not have fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ, his son. As long as you choose to walk in darkness. Now, let's go back for just a second and maybe more specifically define what I think darkness is. I think darkness is being out of fellowship with God and out of fellowship with his people, specifically due to sin in your life. I don't believe darkness is an unbeliever. I don't think you can lose your salvation. Although Lutherans who commonly refer to these verses do believe that. I was in a Lutheran church last night for a project and they point to this verse. We don't lose our salvation. But we do come out of fellowship with God and with his people. And I think, you know, if if you think, well, Romans 2 says, judge not lest you be judged. Aren't you up there judging our hearts? You don't know our hearts. You don't know what's going on in our lives. Yes, judge not lest you be judged. But it's important to identify that it's not saying don't be discerning. It's not saying don't come to a brother in love and try and bring him back to fellowship with the believers and with God. That's certainly not what it's saying. In fact, what it means is judge not lest ye be judged because you yourself commit the same sin. It means that no one of us is better than another. If God had imported grace differently, our situations could be reversed. In fact, if an unbeliever if you look down on an unbeliever, I would say you're, you're judging them unduly. If you, if you elevate yourself in pride and look down because God chose you and could just as easily has, have chosen that other person and not you. God chose you and works in you and brings you to sanctification through his word and through the Holy Spirit. Not you yourself. So be careful when you start to make excuses, when you start to think, oh, I don't need to do that. They do. If that's your heart, then you certainly do. Um, so, 
let me ask you. Is the problem the problem? Is uh, the pews or the wallpaper or your job or that tie or whatever it is that you're fighting over, that toy perhaps, the lawn, the dishes, whatever it is, the lights, the doors, the whatever, is that really the problem? Or is the problem that both people in the relationship need to be seeking joyful fellowship through confession of their sins? Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I, I question, you know, why do they assign the term righteous one? To God. I think it's because only the righteous one could atone for our sins. By what means do you atone for our sins? By the means of his righteousness. Also, I believe it's a reference to the Old Testament. The term for Messiah um, was often paralleled with other terms. And one of them was our righteous Lord. And I believe that the righteous one could be a nod to the Jewish audience and say, he's the prophesied one. And he's come and he is the atoning sacrifice for your sins. And you are sinners. I write this to you. The first time he used the, the word I instead of we. I write this to you so that you will not sin. Or probably, more accurately, so that you will not continue to sin. Because we are going to sin. Many people have taken God's forgiveness and abused it. Romans 6 says, shall we sin that grace may abound? Horrors, no. Horrors, no. That's not the point. It's difficult to have humility. It's difficult to ask for forgiveness. To confess your sins. But it is necessary for joyful fellowship. So what are the important things that I want you to take away from this passage? What do you need to remember? First off, do not be deceived into thinking you haven't sinned. That's the first indicator in most cases that you have. Number one, do not be self-deceived into thinking that you're sinless. Two, being saved does not mean that we don't need to confess our sins. Some people think it's one and done. I ask God's forgiveness at salvation, now I'm covered. I disagree. I think that the character of a believer is consistent Daily, 
confession of sins to God and to the believers. We see this supported in James chapter 5. It's actually referred to as an illness. And it's also referred that way in Titus. It's an illness. And actually, an illness of the mind. We're self-deceived. And number three, confessing our sins is the means to joyful fellowship. If you recognize that there is something between you and another person, the first thing I would ask is, have I sinned? Do I need to confess? And I would encourage you, if the other person doesn't immediately reciprocate, be patient. It's going to happen that way for them to you as well. They're not always going to... It's really hard when you're confronted with sin to handle it well the first time. It's very difficult. Be patient with one another. Chapter 2 describes being um, in darkness this way. Chapter 2, verse 9. If anyone claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister, is still in darkness. Does that mean that they're not saved? No. It means they're out of fellowship with God. And they're blinded by their sin. They can't see. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives. Lives in the light. And there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness and they do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. But those who live in the light, they're not stumbling around. Can I, can I encourage you that if you're living in darkness, it becomes more difficult to see the light the longer you persist in darkness. It becomes more and more difficult to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness the longer you wait. Do it now. Do it today. Do it in your heart immediately now. It only gets harder to humble yourself. And eventually, that sin may go forgotten and unconfessed. And I think there's grace there as well. But don't let that happen. Once again, don't be deceived into thinking you've not sinned. Being saved doesn't mean you don't need to confess your sins. And confessing your sins is the means, our means, for joyful fellowship. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you today. And we are, we are incredibly thankful for the gift of salvation that you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves and Become obedient to the point of death, just as your son did. That we would see him as our example for humility. He humbled himself so greatly. How could we not humble ourselves? Please give us victory in the war for joyful fellowship today. In your son's name, amen.